We'll be reading from Psalm 51, which can be found on page 556 of most versions of the Pew Bible. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Then I will teach transgressors to your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart. O God, you will not despise. In your good pleasure, make Zion prosper. Build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then there will be righteous sacrifices, whole burnt offerings to delight you then bulls will be offered on your altar. Praise be to God for his word. Thanks, Russell. Um, I really thought I'd be um, like that Beatles song says, Father Mackenzie um, this week, writing a sermon that no one will hear, but I'm really glad that you're here this uh, this evening. Um, But given it's a long weekend, I know there's many people at the Engage conference this weekend, so... Uh, Well done for coming, despite all the things you could have been doing tonight. Thank you. And I hope you're blessed by his word tonight and being together. Um, Let me pray before we have a a look at uh, God's word. Heavenly Father, thank you that we can come to your word tonight and we pray that uh, you would speak to each one of us and help us to um, be changed by your word, to be transformed uh, into the people that you'd want us to be. Uh, Give us a listening ear to uh, hear your voice to us. Speak to us, we pray, in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, I wanted to, it's good to see some kids here tonight. I wanted to ask you a question first. And I was wondering if you've, you've ever been in trouble, if you've ever been, you've done something naughty and you got caught, your parents found out, and then you had to go up to your brother or your sister and you had to apologise. Your mum and dad, they made you apologise. Has that ever happened to you? Oh, please forgive me, I'm sorry. Well, your mum and dad think that's really important because they want, you know, they want you to get along with each other. They want to restore the relationship that you and your brother had. And maybe you're a teacher or a student 
and uh, maybe you've seen conflict in the, in the classroom, in the playground and what they do at schools these days, they've got something called restorative practice and the teachers, they ask the students some questions, they say, uh, they say some questions, they say, well, who's been affected and what can you do to make, make things right and uh, how can you make sure the fighting stops? And what really matters in this restorative practice is that you try to restore the relationship. And apparently if you ask the right questions, you, can, you should be able to stop the fighting. And last year we were here at church, some of the, um, the married couples, and we had a, a marriage seminar and um, we learnt this, uh, this series, this technique of confession and apology. It was called the seven A's of confession. And the seven A's of confession, they go like this. Address everyone who's involved. Avoid if, but and maybe. Admit specifically what you've done. Acknowledge the hurt. Accept the consequences. Alter your behaviour and ask for forgiveness. And after the marriage seminar, the very next day I was driving home and um, I was with my family and just in front of me I could see there was a, a big blue-tongued lizard crossing the road and I just swerved gently across to the other side of the road and swerved back just to avoid the lizard. And my wife, she thought that the car that was about a kilometre in the distance, we were just about to hit it and um, she kind of, well, she thought I was driving like a crazy person and she got really upset and anyway... But then the kids and we sort of said, well, it was a bit unreasonable going off like that. We were miles away from them. Anyway, and so she, she had to go through the seven A's of the confession. She addressed everyone in the car. I'm really sorry for being so, you know, panicky. She, and she avoided if, buts and maybes. She admitted specifically what she did. She acknowledged the hurt that she caused everyone. She said, I'll accept the consequences of whatever happens to me and I'll, I'm going to try, I'll alter my behaviour and she asked everyone forgiveness. It was the most thorough apology and confession that I've ever um, you know, known in my life. And the relationship was restored and that was really important. And so we, we can see from an early age that we're taught the importance of confessing and of apologising, trying to restore broken relationships. When something we've done wrong, we want to get it right, don't we? And it's because we don't want to live with un resolve tension and conflict in our lives. We don't like that, do we? We know when something's our fault, we know we feel miserable, we can feel wretched, we can feel dirty. It can eat away at us. And we don't want to be cut off from other people. It's important that we get our relationships right. And if our relationships with people are important and we don't want to be separated from them, how much more serious is it when our relationship with God is broken? And this is what we can sense in David's prayer to God in Psalm 51. He's done some really disgraceful things. We can see that even at the the start of the psalm there, when Nathan the prophet comes to David after he's committed adultery with Bathsheba. And he's organised Uriah's death. He's tried to cover it all up. And he knows because of what he's done, he deserves to be cut off from God. And if you're in David's situation... What would you do? How would you pray? Well, let's have a look what David does pray. And before we get to the actual words of his prayer, of his psalm, can you imagine how he felt? He must have felt like total filth. He's disgusted with himself for what he's done. He would have been feeling like a total failure. He's God's chosen king. He's been blessed with about 
every imaginable privilege possible and yet he's abused this position of power just for a brief moment of pleasure. I was asked by a friend not that long ago, he said, what's the the test to um, show what kind of a person you are, to show your true character? And I thought to myself, well, you put someone under pressure, you put them in a difficult situation and you see how they react. And he corrected me and he said, well, I don't think that's right. He said, you give someone power and you see what they do with it. And, well, if that's true, then David failed this test of power, didn't he? And he tried to use his power to cover up his sin. But now it's all been exposed by Nathan. He feels ashamed and he knows that he deserves to be cut off from God. And so what does he do? Well, he cries out for mercy, doesn't he? Because he wants to get rid of his filth. It's always with him. It's like a bad stain that he can't wash out. He knows what he's done. It's a shocking offence against God and he can't do anything himself to make himself clean. He doesn't come up with any excuses anymore. He doesn't try to cover it up. He's completely honest in admitting that he is fully responsible for his own actions. He says that, the sin is mine. Look what it says in the first four verses there in Psalm 51. Keep your Bibles open. We're going to work right through this. It says, Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love, according to your great compassion. Blot out my transgressions. Wash away my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. For I know my transgressions and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight so that you are proved right when you speak and justified when you judge. One of the first words that uh, little kids seem to, to learn is mine. Mine. You know, and even the seagulls in Finding Nemo, they could say mine. It must be a really easy word to say if little kids and even seagulls can say mine. But saying mine can be really hard when it comes to owning our sin. Our natural response is to distance ourselves from our sin. But David's heart has been broken and he confesses, the sin is mine. And David also confesses that sin is something that's part of his nature. He's not making an excuse here for what he's done. He's just admitting that he's helpless to cure himself. David sinned not because he didn't have enough friends to keep him accountable or because he saw a beautiful woman bathing from his rooftop. He sinned because there's something wrong with his heart. A bit over a hundred years ago in London there was a... um, Uh, The the, the London Times, I think it was, they had some essays that were being written by famous writers. They invited people to write in about different topics and the topic was, what is wrong with the world? And different people responded with their answers and this guy called G.K. Chesterton, he wrote in a two-word answer to this essay, what is wrong with the world? And he said, dear sirs, I am. What is wrong with this world? I am. He could see that the problem is with the world's not external, it's internal. It's what's within him. And that's what David does here. David admits that the very core of his nature is corrupt and he can't do anything about it. But he also knows that God demands integrity, faithfulness and upright character, things now that David knew he lacked. Look at verses 5 and 6. Surely I was sinful at birth, 
sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Surely you desire truth in the inner parts and teach me wisdom in the inmost place. What really matters to God is David's heart. The next thing we need to ask is why, why does David turn to God? Couldn't David have just gone to, to Bathsheba and to Uriah's family and earnestly begged for their forgiveness and everything would have been okay? Why does David say in verse 4, against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight? It's true, David had sinned shockingly against Bathsheba and Uriah and there's no question of that. And it's right, when we offend someone, that we ask for their forgiveness. But David knew that his sin was primarily against God. God is really the offended party. Sin is an attack on God himself. It's directly opposite to all that is good in the character of God. David has broken God's moral law in his actions, in his attitude and in his nature. And David knows that he stands guilty before God who will ultimately judge him and his judgement will be right. Verse 5 reminds us of this. So you are right in your verdict and justified when you judge. And David turns to God because God is his judge. So what, what can God do for David? We can see David's heart was broken when he saw his sin. David turned to God because his heart was broken. He knew that God was his rightful judge. But what can God do for David? Is there any hope for David? Well, one thing David knows for certain is that God can clean the filthiness, the blackness of his sin. And he knows that his heart can be made clean and pure. And God is the one who can change David's heart with all of the ugliness of its sin into something pure and clean. Let's have a look at verse 7. Cleanse me with hyssop and I'll be clean. Wash me and I'll be whiter than snow. And then down in verse 10, Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Isn't it great when we can know for certain when something is dirty that can be made clean again? Not that long ago we were uh, on holidays just for a, a few days and we came back and our pool had turned green and um, it looked a bit unpleasant. Anyway, the, the, the pool maintenance lady, uh, that's, that's my wife, she said that it would be perfectly clean in 24 hours. She knew this. She had complete confidence in this. She knew that she just put in the right chemicals, a bit of salt, it would be clean. 24 hours later, wow, the water was crystal clear again. And that's the certainty that David knew that God would clean away his filth when he came to God with a broken heart. And David also knows that God can remove this awful guilt from before him. He feels the weight of his terrible sin and he's disgusted by what he's done. His sin is constantly on his mind. It's blazoned on his conscience. And he's been crushed by knowing what he's done. It's such a great offence to God. But he knows God can change this. And we see that in verse 8 and 12. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones you have crushed rejoice. And further down in verse 12. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. Can you imagine how this would have given David hope and relief? He knows that he deserves to live with his guilt and shame. 
but God can turn all of this around. Have you ever lost something that's really precious to you? How do you feel when that thing's gone? You feel terrible, don't you? But how good is it when you find something that you're not expecting to find? It's like a, oh, the best day, isn't it? Blackness is sort of turned to light. And God can do this. God can restore the joy and gladness of his salvations when our heart is broken. And David knows that God won't keep bringing up his past record of sin. He prays in verse 9, Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquities. Don't you hate it when you've done some stupid thing in the past and it's always being brought up by someone on particular occasions? You know, given that I've done lots of stupid things in the past, I can relate to this. Things that, you know, remember that you did that awful thing and remember when you said those awful words. But do you think when David appears before God that God will say to him, oh, there's King David. There's King David who committed adultery. There's King David, oh, the one who had Uriah killed. There's, God's not going to do that. God is going to blot out his iniquities and he won't bring them up against him anymore. I remember when I was, I was brought up in the Salvation Army, we used to sing this chorus, No more, no more, he remembers sin no more. I'm a pardoned offender and God will remember them no more. It's a wonderful reminder that God will blot out our sins. He won't remember them anymore. Not because he's got a bad memory, but he won't count them against us. And David feels like he has every right to be cut off from his relationship with God. He feels like that's, that's the thing that he deserves and you can sense his fear. And he knows that this is what he deserves. He knew that God had taken away his Holy Spirit from the previous king, King Saul. He was a pretty bad king. He'd done some pretty awful things himself. And David's done even worse. Surely if God has taken his Holy Spirit from, uh, from King Saul, his anointing spirit from Saul... Surely he should have taken it away from David. That's why he says in verse 11, Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Saul had completely rejected God. He refused to humble himself before God and confess his sin. David knew what a terrible thing it was to be cut off from God. But he also knew that God could restore that relationship if his heart was broken. David's heart had been broken. He's recognised his sin. He's turned to God. He knows God can turn everything around. And so how does David respond to knowing all this? Well, he commits himself to a life, a changed life. He's going to be a witness for what God has done for him. He's going to let other people know that God is a righteous and merciful judge who won't turn people away when they turn to him. And he can wipe their stains of filth and he can clean them. And because of this, he's going to praise him. Let's read 13 to 15. Then I will teach transgressors your ways and sinners will turn back to you. Save me from blood guilt, O God, the God who saves me. And my tongue will sing of your righteousness. O Lord, open my lips and my mouth will declare your praise. And David's learnt that when we sin against God, we can't approach him in a casual way, thinking that our sins aren't serious. We can't approach him thinking that some sort of animal sacrifice will appease him if our hearts aren't changed. David knows that we can turn to him only when we're crushed by the weight of our sin, when our hearts and our spirits are broken. 
That's what it says in verse 16 and 17. You will not delight in sacrifice or I bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. The sacrifices of God are a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart, O God. You will not despise. David wasn't saying that God had done away with animal sacrifices at this point. They were still a sign that sin had to be, uh, payment for sin had to be made. And we can see that down in verse 19, that God will delight in animal sacrifices, but only when they're brought to God with broken and contrite hearts. That's what really matters to God. And this is what David understood. He understood the weight of his sin against God and God will not despise anyone who truly has a broken heart. Well, you might be thinking, well, this was right for David to pray this way, but I'm not David. I haven't done what David's done. David's done terrible things. I'm nowhere near as bad as that. Okay, I might be a little bit bad, but I'm not that bad. But really, how much different to David are we? Are we really any different at all? Well, this psalm reminds us that we are no different to David. We are all sinners who stand guilty before a holy God. We have a serious problem just like David and just like David, we can't fix it ourselves. David knew his terrible sin and he acknowledged it the moment his sin was exposed. David admitted his problem straight off when Nathan the prophet pointed at David, this is back in uh, 2 Samuel, he said, you are the man, you are the man who has taken Bathsheba for yourself. You are the man who has had Uriah killed. And we can try to deny our sin, we can try to cover our sin, justify our sin, we can try to tell ourselves that our sins aren't really sins, you know, everyone else is doing it. But this psalm reminds us what really matters is that God penetrates our hearts and we can see how serious sin is. The sin that can separate us from God, that can just keep eating away at us, that can take away our joy, it's real, it's serious and we can't do anything about it. And while this psalm reminds us of our sin and our helplessness, it also offers wonderful hope. Hope for everyone who's crushed by their sin. David knew that God would restore him if he approached God humbly with a broken and contrite heart. He confessed his sin straight up. But what's even more incredible is what Nathan said to David after David had confessed his guilt. Nathan said to David in 2 Samuel chapter 12, verse 13, he said, the Lord has taken away your sin. How is that possible that God has taken away David's sin? It does not seem fair to me, does it? There hasn't been any sacrifice made, no payment. There were consequences for David's sin that affected him right throughout his life, but now he stands before for God, forgiven and clean. This seems totally outrageous, doesn't it? David has committed adultery, he's tried to cover it up, he's just about committed every sin there is. And David is forgiven, just like that. Is God some sort of random judge who just lets some people off when he feels like it? It seems outrageous that God could forgive anyone who's capable of such things. How can God be both righteous and 
and the one who justifies and forgives murderers and thieves and liars and adulterers. And I'd share your outrage except for one thing. We read earlier from the book of Romans, the letter to the Romans, that the Apostle Paul understands this outrage and he explains how God can be both righteous in punishing sin and merciful in forgiving sin. And these are really important verses for us to understand in the Old Testament. And it says this in Romans chapter 3, verse 25 and 26. God presented him, Christ, as a sacrifice of atonement through faith in his blood. He did this to demonstrate his justice because in his forbearance he had left the sins committed beforehand unpunished. And that's what 2 Samuel 12:13 says God did. He had taken away David's sin. He did it to demonstrate his justice at the present time so as to be just and the one who justifies those who have faith in Jesus. In other words, God is simply not sweeping David's sin under the rug. Our outrage would be good if that's what God had indeed done. But God has seen down through the centuries to the death of his son, Jesus Christ, who would die in David's place, in your place, in my place, so that David's faith in God's mercy and God's future redeeming work unites David with Christ. David's sins are counted as Christ's sins. And David's righteousness is counted as God's. And God justly passes over David's sin. God is both just and the one who justifies. So if God can remove the filth of David's sin, wouldn't you want this for yourself? Wouldn't you want to be made clean and pure and have your relationship with God restored? Wouldn't you want the weight of that sin that paralyses you taken away? I want to urge you to pray that God would see how serious the problem of sin is but also how wonderful the forgiveness that he offers that he can give through his son, the Lord Jesus. Jesus is the only one who can do this. And for many of us here today, we have experienced this incredible gift that God has offered us in forgiving us and making us clean and new. And our greatest joy is knowing what God has done, that we haven't been separated from him. But sadly, there are Christians who don't know the joy of God's salvation. If you've been forgiven, if you've been given a new, pure heart, if your sin has been blotted out and your relationship with God has been restored, wouldn't you want to live as a joyous Christian? Wouldn't you want to live in a way that reflects what God has done? Too many Christians live with secret sins that just keep being replayed over in front of their minds. They keep eating away at their conscience. If that's you, come to God with a broken heart and he'll free you from whatever it is that has its hold on you. Some Christians find joy in all sorts of places, but when it comes to their relationship with God, there's little joy. Do you find joy in hearing people's testimonies when transgressors turn to God, when sinners turn back to God. That should give you joy. Do you know joy when you're in your Bible study group and you, can, you just know that you're growing in your love for God, in your knowledge of his word, for your love for each other? Does that give you joy? I hope it does. Does it give you joy when you see your young people in our church growing in their faith and understanding, when you see people teaching them and giving them strength and encouragement? Do you know joy when God answers our prayers 
Do you experience joy when you hear the gospel for the second, the third, the fourth, the hundredth, the thousandth time? Do you find joy in the salvation that God gives you? Well, John Piper is a popular American preacher and he calls this a broken-hearted joy. Our hearts need to be broken first so that we can experience God's joy. Let me finish by just giving you one admission. I find preparing these talks really difficult. They take me a long time. I'm not very good at them. But the most difficult thing that I've found in preparing this kind of talk is praying this, this psalm for myself. That's what I've found difficult. And in just a minute we're going to sing this psalm and it's my prayer that as we come to God, he would break our hearts. That's what really matters to God. A broken, contrite heart you will not despise. But not only that, I pray that uh, we would serve him and praise him with a deep joy, the joy of his salvation. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, we, we know that we fail you and that our sin breaks your heart. But I pray that you would give us each a broken and contrite heart as we recognise our sin against you. We thank you that through the death of your Son, the Lord Jesus, that we can experience your forgiveness, that you can clean every stain of our sin. We also pray that you would transform our crushed bones to joy and that you help us to live joyful Christian lives, praising you for your salvation. Give us a broken heart of joy, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.